loving like talking with you guys and really learning about what life is like. My dream is to give the rights, give the freedom to the women of my country. How can I get married? It's everybody's right. Your family or your freedom. There's more to my story. There's more to our story. There's more to my story. Hey, I'm your host, Sarah Little, and you're listening to the More to Her Story podcast. You'll hear from journalists, thought leaders, social entrepreneurs, and of course, girls who are changing the game in their countries and communities. Thanks for choosing to be a part of the conversation, and I'll see you inside. Chanel Contos has sparked an international movement that has led to mandating consent education in every school across Australia. The 24-year-old founded Teach Us Consent, a petition for consent to be included in Australian schools' sex education. Chanel is on the BBC's list of 100 Most Influential and Inspiring Women of 2022, and her book on consent will be coming out later this year. Chanel is a friend and fierce advocate for gender equality, and I was honored to have her on the show this month. So the first question that I ask all of my podcast guests is how has your faith in however you think about or conceptualize the word faith like shaped who you are and what you do in the world? And by faith, you mean like... However you define it, however you conceptualize it. I guess I like quite strongly believe in karma and like what you put out in the world, you kind of get back and that sort of thing. I also definitely, not so much anymore, but Definitely when I was kind of in like the thick of um, the teacher's consent campaign, all the things we're probably about to speak about, I would do manifesting a lot. And like, I, I very much um, think of um, the world in that way, but I'm not um, religious in any like structural way. But I think just kind of faith being good vibes and good people. Um, obviously, if you're, if you're doing that, you probably won't sexually assault someone. So I guess that's part of it all. Hopefully not. Can you just like walk us through like the the creation of teach us consent like why why did you first decide to post that initial call on instagram yeah so teach us consent was a move or is a movement was a movement in australia that demanded that consent education be mandated in our national school curriculum for the purpose of trying to reduce types of sexual assaults that happened in teen years so the way that sydney kind of works which is where i grew up is the private school scene here is like very big and a lot of a lot of people go to these kind of like elite private schools and you're under the impression you're getting you know some of the best education in the world but in reality I kind of had this like moment of realizing that we were all kind of being subjected to human rights violations whilst in these like extremely safe spaces because it was just Um, it wasn't kind of seen as that um so it was basically a moment of anger that got me to post on Instagram asking have you or has anyone close to you ever been sexually assaulted by someone who went to an all-boys school in Sydney so it was quite specific at first and then I was getting testimonies and responses from people from all over Australia which led me to start a website make it a national thing um and then also have a demand for the education to be mandated everywhere not just in these kind of like few private schools yeah and the things that kind of motivated that was basically being older studying my master's in gender and education and learning about 
this form of sexual assault was like a massive like light bulb moment to me to be like oh my god I've never had the words to describe that this was kind of happening to us like on scale with boys due to like gendered norms and um, expectations around like sexuality and you know um, male sexual entitlement and all of these things and then the kind of like final moments were basically speaking with friends I grew up with and realizing that we had endless stories to tell of what were objectively acts of sexual yeah. assault um yeah and then that's why I posted on Instagram <laughs> yeah what was like the personal like toll that hearing all those testimonies took on you it was pretty big to be honest at the time I didn't realize how big it was I kind of thought I don't know I was almost just in like this adrenaline mode and was just reading them and posting them and getting all done so also for context Australia has really strict defamation laws so it's very easy to sue people for saying things about you, especially in regards to like sexual assault or accusations of sexual assault. So I had to read the testimonies to make sure that no one was being named or identified. Yeah. Um, and like at the time, I remember thinking like I was fine and everything's okay, but um, it has definitely <laughs> changed me forever and changed the way that I like see the world, changed the way I see men mainly, and also had like quite a large impact on the way I engage in like sexual activity now. Can you actually elaborate on that a little bit? Like when yeah. you say the way that you fundamentally like see men, like what do you mean? I mean that I just, because the thing is as well, so when, when Teachers Consent first started, people were sending me testimonies, but they were coming to my Instagram inbox before we had a website set up, which meant that I knew who the girls were like speaking in kind of like you know stereotypical terms it was pretty much all girls who submitted testimonies and pretty much all of them were naming boys there were a few gay men but it was pretty much all boys that were perpetrators and I would read this testimony I would know who the girl is at the beginning it would be a girl who was you know in my immediate social circle so someone who followed me on Instagram before all of this happened and they would describe something and I, they, they would get their testimony. And I would remember this from school. I would remember it as like an act of gossip. At the time, it's probably something we would, you know, slut shame her for, be like, oh my God, that's so embarrassing. Or she was so drunk and she did this and blah, 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 blah. And having that new lens on all of these boys who are now young men who are, again, because they all went to kind of like private schools in Sydney. Most of them are in like pretty impressive corporate jobs or they're lawyers or they're kind of the future leaders of the country. And this perception on them now that they did that when they were younger and those are completely normal functioning human beings in our society it just really really changed kind of who I expected this behavior to come from and led me to the conclusion that it really can come from anyone yeah that's sobering <laughs> yeah what does consent education look like in practice like wh where do you even start teaching kids about consent in theory, now what should happen now that consent is... Oh, also, I don't think I've said yet, but consent education was mandated in the Australian curriculum, which was incredible. So exciting. Um, and what that means policy-wise and apparently is that from kindergarten, so about five years old until year 10, which is how large the national curriculum in Australia expands for because school's not compulsory after year 10, um, you learn about consent in an age-appropriate way. So what that is meant to look like is things like from kindergarten, you learn about seeking permission, denying permission, um, uh, asking for hugs, asking to play with toys, um, help-seeking strategies, explicit names of body parts, which I think is that was like a massive win and really um, important and exciting because 
those kind of that age group of like five six year olds are extremely um uh, vulnerable to older predators um and perpetrators and you know because we have all these taboos around bodies especially female bodies and children and all this kind of like shame around their you know quote-unquote private parts or what you know all these euphemisms for these things that are very real to them not teaching them the difference between vulva vagina clitoris like teaching them names of these things means that they often can't describe what happens to them um and language is so important when trying to um prevent and also seek justice for sexual assault so if this five-year-old girl can't describe the names of her own body parts she's never going to be able to describe abuse and it's going to be very easy for perpetrators to then get away with that so that's also really powerful in a way that's like not sexual at all um and then it's meant to be built upon so in those kind of later primary years starting to learn about gender stereotypes and again a completely non-sexual way but understanding you know, what does pink jobs mean and blue jobs and why are these problematic? And, you know, why is, you know, a, a man can be a nurse and a woman can be a doctor and breaking down those sort of things and then continuously building on them um, until sex education is introduced in high school. And then that's when these concepts of consent can come up really explicitly with this foundational knowledge of power and of, um, you know, seeking permission, denying permission, help seeking strategies, all of these things so that it's just like, obvious to apply it to the situation instead of waiting for it to come up in a sexual way for the first time and then feeling um kind of overwhelmed by all this information at once and it kind of getting slid under the bus but yeah. in practice <laughs> we have massive implementation issues of training teachers what's actually being delivered to individual people all of that sort of thing yeah i can imagine that like also like training teachers who have grown up with in a different generation with very different like teachings of what like sex ed and consent ed like even looks like maybe they've never been taught at all like that I don't know that must be a challenge <laughs> a challenge and also you know what I kind of didn't even realize until we got like deep into this like had already being implemented and having conversations about implementation um in Australia most PDHP teachers which is like the type of where you would get your sex ed from and stuff like that most of them are men because they also teach sport um which means a lot of these teachers have very likely perpetrated this sort of violence, especially when they were younger, especially when they were teenagers. And then also, um, you know, any kind of like, like if it's also a woman teacher, it's very likely she's been a victim of this violence and then she needs to speak about it. So it is so complicated um, how to get it right. Let's talk about like toxic masculinity. Ooh, I love talking about toxic masculinity. <laughs> I think what many men think of when they hear the words like toxic masculinity. And I'm sure, I mean, you speak with this about, well, you speak about this like every day, but they think it's like an attack on masculinity itself. Mm. Um, and I think it's actually causing many men, like we're seeing like back to backfire. And we're seeing that with like the rise of figures like Andrew Tate, who now is such an influential figure uh, and has a lot of influence over young men and boys. And for those who, don't know who Andrew Tate is, or you maybe you've heard of him. You don't know what he's <laughs> um, he basically, yeah, he's like a self-identified misogynist. He thinks that you know women belong in the house; they can't drive. That rape victims bear responsibility. Um, he's been charged with human trafficking along with his brother. So, like, there's it's he's not really a great figure to look up to. Um, but there's like this whole kind of movement of young boys who do I'm just like curious like what your thoughts are on 
that and also like how do you engage in conversations with your friend your male friends about this I mean it's so funny when you describe Andrew Tate like that because if you are someone who again is lucky enough to not know who he is and then you hear him described like that you're probably thinking how like how do they have a large following like how does that person have any sort of platform how is it not like a just concrete absolutely no but I mean yeah back to this point of kind of toxic masculinity and how how toxic masculinity has kind of uplifted figures like Andrew um Andrew Tate is so I completely agree I think a lot of men hear toxic masculinity and think that we're calling men toxic um but it is actually not that at all so toxic masculinity first and foremost oppresses men and by oppressing men it create it makes them then oppress society as a whole a toxic masculine idea would be um that you know the way Andrew Tate would describe it is someone who's strong-headed and um you know a solid like rock figure but what that means is it's it's preventing them from expression expressing true emotions or um or any form of kind of like healthy intimacy or vulnerability and then toxic masculinity also tells men that they have to earn lots of money they have to um sexually perform at all times and also have you know multiple sexual partners that are kind of seen as conquests more than any sort of like intimacy being involved in the situation they're told that they need to yeah be a certain height like I always see it on TikTok and stuff it's like these young girls like they're making jokes but they're not jokes they're like oh six foot six inches and six figures um or don't talk to me and I just think that's like the epitome of toxic masculinity and that is oppressing to men first and foremost and then when they either can't meet these standards or they're trying to overcompensate for these standards they do things like for example physical intimidation is a really key point of um, a toxic masculine ideal and we see that being played out in physical violence whether that's men fighting each other or you know um, men being abusive to women and children um, but then we also see that in sport we see that in the way that we idolize sport figures and how men idolize other male sport figures um, and not everyone can be a pro athlete <laughs> not everyone is six foot and not everyone is super strong um, and yeah from that we have this kind of movement that has meant that men are being oppressed in their own way and I think that lots of men with the kind of especially in the context of Andrew Tate and in the context of kind of like more dominant feminism being around as we are starting to like demolish these gender norms and be like oh yeah women can work and they can get paid fairly for it and things like that men feel lost as to what their role is in society now that we're starting to define these things as not okay, which is why they are turning to figures like Andrew Tate who are reinforcing them and saying, oh, don't worry, ignore that. That's just a wave. Like, that's going to go away. Men need to be the providers. Women are meant to stay home. You know, if she wears that, she's asking for it, all of those things. And I think that, again, an injustice of toxic masculinity to men is the fact that we have left this generation of young boys and young men really lost for what, how, like, what healthy masculinity looks like. There's so few examples of that. I mean, I'm sure that you've heard, like I've heard plenty of times that like, you know, oh, what you like expect us to like, from men, like you expect us to like ask for consent every time we want to do something or like be sexual or like, doesn't that kind of kill the mood or like defeat the purpose? And like, what would you, what would you say to those kinds of people who would say that? Um, well, like, yes, we do expect you to get consent because otherwise it's sexual assault. Um, but what I would say to that is, consent 
like what I hear and oh god like I go to breakfast with my dad's friends and they're kind of like you know like 70 year old white guys who've got like no fucking idea and they're like oh what I meant to like get my wife to sign a piece of paper to like give me consent I'm like no like like you are showing how bad you are at reading human emotion if you think that that is what consent is so what I would say to that is that consent does not always need to be verbal more often than not it is physical so just having basic empathy to read a situation to consider if someone is enjoying a situation whether that's you know a social situation a sexual situation any of those sort of things if someone's being like rigid and you know turning away from you and like backing away or being really timid or speaking really you know quietly and shy that's not consent but if someone is you know enthusiastically kissing you and you're you know one by one kind of making moves and doing things and you've you know have a like a relationship with this person you understand their body language then no you don't need to ask your wife for 50 years if she wants to sign a contract to have sex if she's being enthusiastic but I also do think that the first time or like first few times that you have like a new sexual partner that I think it should be verbal and I, I think the thing is it does not ruin the mood it's as simple as saying um are you comfortable are you happy does this feel good you know can you touch me here can I touch you here um do you like it if I do this like it doesn't need it's to be some turn on, bro. it's a turn yeah. on <laughs> like it doesn't need to be some rigid like um yeah whatever um so I, I don't think consent's hard I think consent is unbelievably simple um yeah. if you are capable of um empathy <laughs> yeah yeah and I, it's a really good point because I feel like how much, what is the statistic? Like how much of language or communication is like nonverbal? It's like, it's like the vast majority. It's like 80 some yeah. percent. Right? Yeah. And it's so, like, that goes with any sexual encounter as well. Like I think also like going back even further and thinking back to like how consent education in an ideal world would be practiced at a really young age is we also, we don't teach young girls how to say no. They're socialized yeah, yeah. to be very accommodating, very empathetic. Um, they're socialized to not want to upset men, basically. Um, and, you know, that sounds like quite extreme, but I, I really, I really yeah. do think that is true. Um, and at the same time, we don't socialize boys to be able to accept rejection. Men are terrible at rejection. Men have drastically fragile egos, um, which is the cause of a byproduct of toxic masculinity and a cause of lots of this sort of, like, violence and I I mean if you're a man listening to this that might sound like quite jarring and dramatic and whatever but I think like it's really important to sit in that um discomfort otherwise it's basically true of you if you can't like stand to hear that the strict socializations of the genders and how they're meant to approach social situations and sexual situations really comes into play here when we're thinking about the inability for you know for men to say that again they don't know how to read body language or what that means like that that's an empathy trait um and we definitely have a large empathy gap between men and women where women are more likely to want to accommodate and be empathetic and push their boundaries or like let their boundaries be pushed um and we have men being willing to push boundaries and that if not sexual assault like uncomfortable sexual experiences what kinds of things do you think that guys can be doing to hold their friends accountable have you seen the rape culture pyramid before it's like a diagram and it's a pyramid so it's like a triangle and it's called the rape culture pyramid and like the top of it the top of the triangle the pinnacle point is like rape and sexual assault and overt violence and then underneath it is um you know things like 
sexual harassment, spiking, um, all these things. And it kind of builds layers on layers. And as you get to the bottom, broader layer of the pyramid of the triangle, it's the normalized behaviors every day. It's the cat calls. It's the locker room talk. It's the misogynistic comments about women's bodies. Um, it's the talking over women in boardrooms. It's the all of these things that we see and ignore every day because they're not that big of a deal. They're just microaggressions. And honestly, in that specific instance sometimes like sometimes I like when I call those things out sometimes it does make you seem like you're kind of like being a bit crazy or like a pedantic feminist not I don't like those terms but that's what society makes you feel like because in isolation they're not that big of a deal I'm doing quotation marks for people who can't say but in reality these lay the foundations for things to be built upon that so locker room talk um and you know the disregard for female bodies builds the foundations for people to send unsolicited dick pics and for that to not be seen as a bad thing and then that sends the foundations for people to take upskirts of girls on the subway and for that not to be seen as a bad thing and then that builds the foundations for someone to remove a condom during sex and it not be seen as a bad thing and then it builds the foundations for overt sexual assault to occur um and either be perceived as socially acceptable in some context or um not or you know in rare cases not good but also it happened um so what I would say men can do and men and boys and everyone but especially men and boys because it's really powerful when it kind of comes from that side unfortunately um is to start getting rid of that bottom layer of the pyramid because that's what everyone is contributing to unless they're actively not contributing to it like if you're being complacent in this that means you're being complicit in it you're establishing a culture that allows it to thrive you're telling your friends by not saying anything that it's okay for them to talk about women like that um it's okay to talk over someone in a boardroom so just starting to think and like reflect on kind of like what behaviors you may have been doing up until this point or have done when you're younger or something sit in that discomfort and then just like actively try to change them even though they seem small yeah sorry my emails are going off the background (laughs) No, you're so popular. Um, what, what practical advice do you have for parents, um, you know, teaching their kids about consent? I mean, it is so hard because exactly as you said before, so many of these people have grown up with really problematic values because that's why we're in this position we're in because we also... Grow up. Especially, like, we're living in an age where, like, people access and young people access their information about sex through like social media through porn through friends yeah mainly pornography and I think I mean something that parents hate hearing (laughs) but I love reminding them is that the average age of access to pornography in Australia first access is nine years old like when you see a nine-year-old child it it just seems like so 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 wrong most of the time the access is accidental because so many pornography sites advertise through, you know, gaming websites. Like they know that it's kids that are going to access this sort of thing. Um, which means we need to have these conversations so much earlier than you can ever even think that you need to be having them. I think for parents, again, they need to sit back and reflect on their own values on what they're kind of like preaching forward and how they were growing up. Because often I hear from... I hear it from like middle-aged people, mainly women a lot actually, that it's kind of like, oh, you know, you just put up with it. Like you'll learn to get over it. Um, That sort of thing. Like this idea of putting up with it. And it's like, yeah, I mean, obviously we can put up with it and obviously like 
we're not we can we'll probably be fine but that's not good enough it doesn't it doesn't need to happen in the first place so I think parents who kind of like accidentally uphold these things by you know thinking they're not that big of a deal or you know even things like I was talking about this yesterday like I do not mean this in any way this is not like a negative thing on my mum in any way it's just kind of how again she like perceives things and whatever um I was talking about street harassment I was talking about the first time I kind of like told my parents that you know I'd been harassed on the street and it was of a sexual nature as kind of you know a cat call or a beep like whatever I can't remember and um my mum's response as like an older woman was oh god honey take it as a compliment I wish I still got cat called like that sort of thing you know and that's not her fault because that is how she thinks because she was conditioned to think that male attention is nice and important and a compliment but I'm just thinking parents who it's really common for mothers to say things like that and I'm thinking how many sons are sitting in that room how many brothers right. the yeah. daughters complained about it and then how many of them are hearing oh no it's a compliment honey I think yeah a deep reflection on kind of like biases and stuff needs to be understood by parents and then also if you're not willing to have this conversation with your kids make sure they're getting it from somewhere else like make sure their school is providing it to them make them sit down and watch a documentary on it or something sign up to a course like whatever it is if you don't feel equipped to do it make sure you are outsourcing that because also often kids don't want to hear it from their parents particularly but it is still important that they're hearing consistent messaging at school in the media at home all these sort of things um so what what's next for you Chanel um I have a book coming out in September so I hope we can speak again then and I guess for I guess what I'm just trying to do with like I guess I don't know my mission vision whatever you want to call it is this focus on like normalized violence and eradicating that because there's a real there's a really big difference with um instances of kind of like overt violent rape and then instances of sexual assault where the reason for it occurring was a misunderstanding um, or a disregard for consent um, and education and training and cultural norms can be massively impactful in changing that type of rape where consent is a question mark whereas if someone is like inherently sadistic or malicious and wants to hurt someone a consent education talk's not going to do anything to change that that's like intergenerational trauma lots of resources on an individual person from a young age you know all those sort of things those those people are rare in our society but that type of rape is what upholds the stereotype and what I just really want to keep doing is making sure that as many people as possible know that that is not the type of rape that we should fear in our day-to-day lives it is actually a very preventable type of rape that has been normalized and encouraged by things like toxic masculinity by things like that rape culture pyramid and all of those things on the bottom um because yeah that's just like the vast majority of sexual violence is preventable in my opinion and that's kind of what I want to work on preventing the one that can change with education yeah wow. <laughs> so the platform that I run the podcast is called more to her story mm-hmm. so what is the more to your story like despite everything I say about men I actually love boys um <laughs> I don't think that's a good <laughs> good way to um end but yeah I think I think that um like I actually have you know I care deeply for the men in my life my brothers my dad um you know my boyfriend a lot of my best friends are men um and I hold them to a really high account and I'm I love my relationships with them because I love having these conversations with them and challenging them and them challenging me and you know feeling like change is um being made um 
so yeah, I'm not just like a kind of angry feminist, although I probably am most of the time. <laughs> and I'm happy to be known as an angry feminist. You can main, you can keep just thinking. <laughs> I have to be both, but yeah, that's that's really admirable. I I hope to get to that point one day where I can be like. <laughs> This conversation ends here, but we don't have to stop talking. Give us a follow on Instagram at more to her story official or go to moretoherstory.org to submit your work. Thanks so much for listening and check back in every month for new episodes.